Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, Dan Ambender here. It's time to dive back into our comprehensive adult congenital heart disease series co-chaired by doctors Agnes Kogso, Dan Clark, and Josh Safe. Stay with us. And friends, in this incredible episode, we get to learn about single ventricular anatomy and Fontan hemodynamics and physiology with doctors Danielle Mazzarella and Yuli Kim. Now, I won't lie. Planning this episode and having this discussion was a personal win for me because I had always been baffled and boggled by the complexities of the single ventricle and Fontan physiology. But I realized that by not focusing on how complex this topic is and moving away from all of the eponyms and just thinking about how to physically get blood where it needs to go, thinking of all of the connections and baffles and conduits as roads or highways for a magical school bus to get through to get to the right place. Help me really understand the concepts behind single ventricle, the issues involved, and the tools we have to address these hemodynamic and structural issues. I strongly recommend that after you listen to this episode, you go back to episode 82, CNCR from Stanford, to help re-emphasize some of these concepts. We thank our collaborators at the Adult Congenital Heart Association, the CHIP Network, and Heart University. These are organizations with incredibly committed people who work tirelessly to improve the lives of those living with ACHD. You can find the links to these organizations in the episode description. Remember, Cardi Nerds is an independently fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to collect free CME using the link in the episode description. And do be a nerd. Spread the word by rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast app. And more importantly, by telling your friends, family, and colleagues about the show. And now, time to get nerdy. What's up, cardio nerds? Friends, we'd like to welcome you back to our in-depth ACHD series as we dive into the world of single ventricles and Fontan physiology. First off, I'd like to introduce Danielle, our tour guide through this complex subject. Danielle Massarella received her bachelor's in science in biology and psychology from York University. She excelled and was a recipient of the Dean of Clinical Medicine Award at her graduation. Her experience in gross anatomy class was particularly inspirational and led her to pursue her specialty in cardiology. Danielle went on to pursue a three-year residency in pediatrics and a fellowship in pediatric cardiology at Case Western Reserve University and at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland. From there, Danielle went on to pursue advanced subspecialty training, which is where she is now, doing adult congenital heart disease at Toronto University's Health Network Adult Congenital Heart Cardiac Clinic, one of the biggest adult congenital centers in the world. Danielle, welcome to Cardio Nerds. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with our hosts and also with Dr. Yuli Kim, who is the director of the Philadelphia Adult Congenital Heart Center. Dr. Kim earned her Bachelor of Arts degree at Georgetown University and her MD at the University of Virginia. She then went on to complete her internal medicine residency at Johns Hopkins Hospital and cardiology fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. She specializes in congenital imaging as well as ACHD and completed her training in these areas at Children's Hospital Boston. She also completed a postdoctoral fellowship through the National Institutes of Health. Welcome, Dr. Kim. Thanks for having me, everybody. Dr. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to learn from you and Danielle as we dive into Fontan physiology. But first, I'd love to hear about how you first got interested in adult congenital heart disease. Well, you know, I did not have an interest or really even awareness of adult congenital heart disease until kind of far along in my training. So it wasn't until my second year of adult cardiology fellowship at the clinic that I even started to think about ACHD. And it really came about because I was trying to figure out whether I was going to differentiate or if I was going to stay undifferentiated. So I spoke with my program director. He asked me to think a little bit about patients that I enjoy taking care of. And I remember there was a patient who was in his 20s with something called transplant position of the great vessels. I really didn't know what it was. I did a lot of reading about it and he really stuck with me. And I think starting with that experience, I fell in love with congenital heart disease and here I am now. Would it change a thing? That's awesome. We all benefit from that experience and I'm so thankful for that patient encounter that you had, Dr. Kim. Thinking about 
Hashtag YACHD reminds me of a patient that I recently had the privilege of taking care of, whose story really highlights so many of the things that make this field so special. Con Dwight is a 34-year-old female with a history of tricuspid atresia and atrial septectomy and PA band at four weeks old, followed by a bidirectional glen at four months old and an extra cardiac fontan at age three. She came to us with weight gain and ascites. Wait up and hold the phone. Speaking of all things that makes ACHD so special, there's already so much to unpack here in this beautifully crafted one-liner. Danielle, would you mind helping me out by explaining her anatomy? Of course, Danny. But first, before I go too deep, let me take a step back and tell our listeners about what a Fontan is for. The Fontan palliation is a series of operations for congenital heart disease patients who cannot ultimately undergo biventricular repair. In essence, it's the final common pathway for many congenital heart disease patients that reroutes the venous blood directly to the lungs to bypass the right side of the heart. Now let's dive into this particular congenital heart defect that led to the Fontan palliation. In tricuspid atresia, the tricuspid valve never develops, and there's no connection between the right atrium and ventricle. The exact cause of this is still not well understood. In fetal life and infancy, all the systemic venous return needs to cross the atrial septum, mixing with the pulmonary venous return and reaching the ventricles through the mitral valve. As a consequence of having no flow through the inlet of the right ventricle, this structure is often poorly developed and hypoplastic as well. So individuals with tricuspid atresia are cyanotic and have only one fully functioning ventricle. Before 1971, the year the Fontan procedure was described, the mortality of such patients was 90% in the first year of life. Wow, 90% is incredible to think of. You know, complex ACHD makes me as intrigued as it makes me dizzy. So I'm really excited to delve into this dizzying case with Danielle, Daniel, and Daniel. How's that for alliteration? So guys, let's slow down to really grasp this anatomy and blood flow. Let's go back to her pre-Fontan anatomy. I think I know exactly what you're thinking. Let's get back into our fan favorite magic school bus, no financial disclosures. So seatbelts, everyone. Beep, beep. We hop on our bus at the Splanknik station. It's hypoxic and full of CO2. So we speed up to get to the heart and pass through the liver sinusoids, zoom past the hepatic vein, join the throughway of the IVC and plunge into that right atrium. I think right now, Dr. Kim is thinking, what the heck did she get herself into? (laughs) (laughs) Sorta, kinda. (laughs) But really, because of her large ASD, we're actually entering the common atrium and the blue deoxygenated blood we rode in on gets mixed in with a life-giving red oxygenated blood from the pulmonary veins draining into the left atrium. So now we're in this big, functionally single atrium with mixed and intermediately oxygenated purple blood. We can't get into that RV because of her tricuspid atresia. So we race downhill over that gradient through the mitral bell into the morphologic left ventricle. But like the atria with that ASD, the huge VSD makes it so that the ventricles are essentially a single large ventricle. Hmm. Think I'm going to need a map here, guys, because I'm not quite sure which way to go from here. We can drive up the pulmonary artery connected to the morphologic left ventricle to get into the pulmonary circulation or go up the aorta connected to the morphologic RV to get into the systemic circulation. Which way should we go? I feel like either way is kind of the wrong turn. It's like my driving before Waze was invented. This massive pump shoving blood into the lungs does not seem great. And on the other hand, all the purple blood going to the systemic circulation causing systemic hypoxia and cyanosis isn't great either. Dan C, help us out. You guys nailed it. In ACHD, we like to say no flow, no grow. Because the tricuspid valve was hypoplastic from the get-go, the RV is a rudimentary structure. So essentially, you end up with a functional single ventricle physiology. If you can't surgically separate them back into two distinct ventricles from a septation procedure, then the single ventricle comes with three main problems. First, you can get unbalanced flow through the pulmonary versus systemic circulations depending on obstructions along the way. In this case, the pediatric cardiologists are hoping for some native pulmonic stenosis because as we all know, the pulmonary vascular bed is lower resistance. And as a baby, all of Khan's blood would preferentially want to go there. If not, a PA band in infancy like Khan received to balance the directionality of blood flow was in order. If not, Khan would have suffered from heart failure and poor feeding, usually around six months of age. If there was some pulmonic stenosis, but not quite enough, the low-pressure pulmonary vasculature can cause pulmonary overcirculation, and with time, pulmonary vascular remodeling and consequent pulmonary hypertension, thereby making Fontan palliation not an option. 
Next, the body still needs blood. DNA was right on. For this to happen, the blood has to cross from the one good pumping chamber, in Khan's case, the LV, through an unrestricted VSD and out the transposed aortic valve that arises from the RV. Thus, the VSD needs to allow blood to flow across without obstruction, and the aortic valve and aorta need to be big enough to handle systemic circulation. In tricuspid atresia, this is usually not a problem, but in other types of single ventricular anatomical heart disease, LV outflow tract obstruction and the aorta size are sometimes important and may require surgical correction as well to have good systemic circulation. Finally, while Kahn was lucky to have a systemic LV as the main pumping chamber, which we all know it was designed to handle, this chamber is volume-loaded with both systemic and pulmonary circulation with mixing of deoxygenated and oxygenated blood in the common atrium up until the time of the Fontan operation. So instead of leaving it to get double the normal blood flow and having to pump double what it was designed to and leaving Khan blue for her whole life, Khan's pediatric team decided to palliate with the series of operations that ultimately led up to the Fontan procedure that decompressed this ventricle. That sounds great. I mean, I think that bottom line here is the term balance. You know, you want to balance blood flow and you want to balance saturations. And here's a situation with the baby in which everything's mixed. So lots of things to think about. And that is very helpful. So balance is the key. And I'm sure that at different stages, things change. So for example, at T0, when this baby was born, there's so much to deal with. Where do we even begin? That's right, Danny. At the outset, there's a lot to deal with. And so we typically do things with a stepwise approach. Just like Dan C laid out, there are three main problems. Possible unbalanced pulmonary versus systemic outflow, pulmonary overcirculation with risk of later developing Eisenmenger syndrome and mixing of the blood. So several surgical procedures were developed to address each of these. Let's tackle them one by one. First, let's consider the possibility of unbalanced flow either into the PA or into the aorta in the event of a possible outflow obstruction. How can we ensure adequate aortic flow into the systemic vasculature? Well, we can disconnect the PA and reroute the pulmonic valve outflow into a reconstructed neoaorta so that the aorta would be getting flow through both the aortic valve and the pulmonary valve. This is called the Damus case stancil anastomosis. Wow, that neoaorta makes sense so that you get flow into the systemic tree. But if you are disconnected from the PA, how does blood get into the lungs? Wouldn't our school bus come to a dead end when trying to get into the lungs for that sweet, sweet oxygen? Great question. We wouldn't want that, of course. This brings me to the question of how we can ensure adequate blood flow into the PA. Well, we can create either an aortopulmonary shunt, retrograde, like the Blalock-Talsig-Thomas shunt, where the blood flows from the right subclavian artery into the right pulmonary artery, or a ventricular to pulmonary conduit antegrade, like the Sano shunt, which is just a fancy tube connecting the ventricle to the PA. The neoaorta DKS anastomosis, along with one of these shunts together, are called the Norwood procedure. I know it's a lot of eponyms or for your map road names, but better to understand the flow of blood and the original issue they're addressing. I agree, Danielle. Better to understand the physiology than the eponyms. We're just creating alleyways to make sure a bus can get where it needs to go. Now, that was a great explanation of how to address the issue of possible unbalanced flow. Danielle, would you mind going over how we address the next issue, how we protect the pulmonary vasculature from overcirculation, prevent Isomanger syndrome? So this is also very important and easier to understand now that we already reviewed some of the conduits we can make, or shall I say, roads we can pave. We really do need to protect our low-pressure compliant pulmonary vascular tree from the intense systemic pressures generated by the single ventricle. There are a variety of approaches. One option is pulmonary artery banding, which is simply adding a restrictive band around the pulmonary artery to decrease the pressure and flow into the lungs. Another option is to literally disconnect the main pulmonary artery and place another more restrictive conduit to allow blood into the pulmonary artery. How can we do that? Oh, I got this one. This would be just like doing the Norwood without actually making the new aorta. So if we disconnected the pulmonary artery, we could create an aerodopulmonary shunt, like the BTT shunt connecting the right subclavian artery to the right pulmonary artery so that systemic blood can go retrogradedly into the pulmonary circulation, or a ventriculopulmonary shunt, like the sauna shunt that we talked about earlier, connecting the ventricle directly to the PA for antegrade flow. So by disconnecting the PA and adding something like the BTT shunt, we're essentially replacing a major highway for a meager alleyway. So we could get just enough blood to the lungs, but not too much. This is kind of fun, guys. I feel like a civil engineer planning the flow of traffic, but here it's just the flow of blood. I'm beginning to see how the same basic concepts can be applied to different scenarios depending on the issue or case at hand. That's absolutely right. I, I totally agree. I think this is a lot about road building, I suppose. 
And I think it gets back to this concept of balance, trying to make sure there's not too much blood flow and not too little blood flow, but just trying to make it right. Great. So now we know how to, one, address unbalanced flow to make sure that you're getting enough output, and two, ways to protect the pulmonary vasculature from overcirculation. So now, Danielle, would you mind showing us how to address the last major issue of mixing blood? Of course. As you can imagine, blood mixing causes systemic hypoxia and cyanosis. The ultimate goal is to completely separate the systemic and pulmonary circulations, just like normal cardiovascular anatomy. But we only have one ventricle to work with. So what do we do? We play the cards we're dealt, and that's where the concept of the Fontaine circuit comes from. Essentially, a Fontaine circuit surgically reroutes systemic venous drainage directly to the pulmonary vasculature passively without a cardiac pumping chamber. It's amazing to consider the hemodynamics of a completely passive venous return to the lungs without an intervening pump chamber. But I'd have to assume that having a right ventricle, as the normal anatomy does, helping things along is just so very important and when lacking may not be ideal. I could already begin to imagine the hemodynamic consequences of not having that. That's right, Dana. The hemodynamics of the Fontaine circuit get really fascinating and have important implications for the patient and our management approach. Long-term complications aside, the Fontaine circuit with single ventricular palliation completely revolutionized our approach for several types of complex congenital cardiac defects, like tricuspid atresia in this case, but also many others like double inlet left ventricle, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and others. You know, Dancy, hearing you talk about the impact the Fontan circulation, the circuit has had on real life patients really hits home for us. This area is really close to our hearts at CardioNerds. And our friends will remember Jeremy Keck from episodes 82 and 83. Jeremy was a husband, a son, brother, father. He's also an avid golfer, a businessman, and so many other things. Yes. And I think about him and his wife, Anna Keck, often. He was really the first time that I really first thought about the Fontan circuit. As I remember, he had LTGA and double inlet LV and had pulmonary banding as an infant, and he had a classic Fontana a few months later. Now, over the years, however, he developed right atrial dilatation and arrhythmias, and so when he was 14 years old, he had a Fontan revision with a lateral tunnel. So, Danielle, what's the classic Fontan? The beauty about the Magic School Bus is that it can also travel back in time. So let's take a trip to 1971 when the ACHD world took a huge leap forward. Fontana and Associates proposed a sequence of surgical procedures, starting with the connection of the superior vena cava to the right pulmonary artery. Next, an aortic valve homograft was placed between the right atrial appendage and the proximal end of the right pulmonary artery where it had been ligated in the prior step. The atrial septal defect was closed. A pulmonary homograft was then placed into the inferior vena cava, and the main pulmonary artery was ligated. The result was complete separation of the systemic and pulmonary venous return, where the SVC and IVC drained directly to the lungs and bypassed the ventricles completely. So with this, venous blood from the head or arms would go into the SVC and then into the right pulmonary artery, and blood from the lower body would go up from the IVC into the right atrium and then out to the pulmonary artery. So from either direction, you're passively filling the pulmonary arteries and bypassing any ventricle. There are variations of this, and it's usually done in stages, like first doing the SVC to right pulmonary artery shunt or the Glenn shunt, sometimes surgically done as a hemifontan, so you may hear these different terms. So the SVC blood goes to the lungs, and the IVC blood still goes to the single ventricle. Months later, classic Fontan completion can be done to connect the right atrial appendage to the pulmonary artery, thus finally rerouting all systemic venous return to the pulmonary arteries. But the common theme with the classic Fontan was that the IVC flow returning first to the right atrium before entering the pulmonary artery through some surgical connection. Originally, it was thought that the contractile function of the right atrium would make this circuitous route worthwhile. However, it was later discovered how dilated the right atrium becomes, predisposing the patient to arrhythmias and loss of atrial kick, and how inefficient this circuit was in terms of flow hemodynamics. Thus, this passive flow through the right atrium could lead to several issues, which may be why some patients end up getting switched to an extra cardiac Fontaine. Dr. Kim, what are the issues with the classic Fontaine? And would you describe the subsequent iterations of the procedure, please? Yeah, of course. So just like you said, the classic Fontaine sounds good in concept, but in reality, probably not a long-term solution. As you would imagine, if the right atrium is kind of taken over as the quote-unquote pump on the right side, 
you know, it, it starts to run into difficulties by getting larger and larger. So with progressive right atrial dilation pumping against, you know, these PA pressures, you do end up with not only severe RA dilation, but the things that you would think about that would go with RA dilation, which would include rhythmia circuits, most specifically intraatrial reentry tachycardia is pretty common. It's a form of flutter that's got uh, a really large macro reentry circuit associated with it. And then with these large right atrium, you can also imagine a lot of stasis. You can imagine smoke if you image them on echo and predisposition to clot. And so for these reasons, the classic Fontaine with this particular physiology is not a great long-term. And as you said, we sometimes take these patients and revise them, which is another way to think about upgrading them to the more streamlined total cable pulmonary anastomosis, the TCPC. And, and two flavors of those are either the lateral tunnel Fontan or the extra cardiac conduit Fontan. Both of them essentially bypassing or either using some of the right atrium to directly connect the vena cava to the PAs without using this right atrium as the pumping chamber. So in short, the lateral tunnel Fontan and the extracardiac conduit Fontan are the more streamlined versions and modern day versions of the Fontan that we now perform. We no longer perform the classic Fontan from the RA to PA for just the reasons I described. The lateral tunnel Fontan is sort of interesting. I would think of it as, you know, if you think about a conduit or sort of a tube and you cut that along the side and it, it turns into sort of a C-shaped sort of, I guess, tunnel, you can use this along with the side of the right atrium to baffle or redirect blood flow from the IVC up through this intracardiac lateral tunnel up to the SVC, which would be plugged into the underside of the right pulmonary artery. This is a way to essentially get the IVC and the SVC directly over to the PAs. Another version of this TCPC is the extracardiac conduit, in which case you don't actually use the side of the right atrium as part of your baffle, but it goes outside of the heart. The extracardiac is very similar to the lateral tunnel, but it actually is, as the name is telling us, it's extracardiac. So the conduit actually goes outside of the heart and again, directs the IVC and the SVC blood outside of the heart directly to the PAs. And again, the advantage is that you don't have this right atrium that progressively gets enlarged over time. The differences between the lateral tunnel and the extracardiac are small. I think they, you know, it really depends on what sort of stage two palliation, meaning either whether they had a bidirectional glen or whether they had a hemifontan, sometimes will dictate what sort of fontan completion the child will have. But I think that one of the take-homes here is that the extracardiac doesn't really grow. It is a fixed prosthetic force inside the heart that does not grow with the child. But they're very difficult to tell the difference when you look at them on imaging. Does the same thing. Terrific. Thank you. You know, this whole topic can be, I think, very intimidating for people, but you're all painting such a clear picture here. And I, I think it's becoming clearer for me. So going back to our patient, she had tricuspid atresia with an ASD and a VSD with essentially a univentricular physiology. And now stepping back, there are a lot of congenital heart disease conditions that can lead to a univentricular physiology with different considerations, you know, double inlet LV, like, you know, our former case had a hypoplastic LV. But in general, when thinking about a single ventricle physiology, we went over the three main issues to consider with single ventricles, including that of unbalanced flow, that of pulmonary overcirculation, and that of blood mixing. And so just thinking back to the paradigm that we keep bringing back and that across the series is what's the structural abnormality? What are the hemodynamic consequences and what are the clinical sequelae? And so, you know, there are different structural abnormalities that lead to these hemodynamic considerations for single ventricles, and each of them has different clinical sequelae. So the single ventricle palliation with a Fontan circuit addresses this last issue of blood mixing by completely separating the pulmonary and systemic circuits by rerouting systemic venous return to passively flow into the lungs and reserving that single ventricle, you only have one, to pump pressurized blood into the high-resistant systemic vasculature. Yeah, so team at ACHD, thanks for all the help with understanding this anatomy. So if we were to backtrack and get back on our magic school bus at the Splate station, following the extracardiac Fontan, we'd zoom past that hepatic sinusoids, get into the IVC highway, through the Fontan tunnel, into the low pressure pulmonary artery, pick up beautiful oxygen and fill up the bus with those passengers at the alveoli, go through the pulmonary veins, through the left atrium, into the morphological left ventricle, through that VSD, into the morphological right ventricle, and into the aorta, and then back for a complete round trip after we drop off all that oxygen and brain and peripheral tissues. Do I have that right, Dan Clark? Yeah, that's great. That's actually perfect, Dan. So you can see how the Fontan circuit revolutionized ACHD care and has helped countless individuals, but it's not without a cost. 
So recall that our patient came in with recent weight gain and abdominal bloating. Physical exam showed ascites, lower extremity edema, and notable varicosities. I'm really concerned about quote-unquote right heart failure and specifically Fontan failure. Dr. Kim, would you mind walking us through the hemodynamic consequences of the Fontan circuit and the longer-term clinical sequelae? Unfortunately, there are a lot of long-term issues to address, but maybe we can break them down in terms of cardiac and non-cardiac sequelae. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, you use the term, quote unquote, right-sided heart failure, and I actually do the same thing. Sort of best to think about the Fontan really as a man-made form of heart failure. It is structural heart disease to the nth degree, for sure. And it's probably the most complex lesion that we deal with. And, and these are the most complex patients that we care for. And like you said, I think it's sort of a trade-off. You trade-off survival early on for the baby and the child, and you pay with sort of long-term consequences. And as a form of man-made heart failure, you end up with both cardiac and non-cardiac sequelae. I think the most important thing to think about in terms of the complications down the line are the two hallmarks of Fontan physiology. And I would say number one would be elevated CBP. So in a Fontan, I would say that would be on average, like a good Fontan would be a CVP anywhere between 10 and 15. And we know that's not a normal central venous pressure. The second hallmark of Fontan physiology is low cardiac output and the inability really to withstand the demands of exercise or pregnancy or anything else. We know, you know, in normal physiology, we can actually increase our cardiac output by about five times just by exercising and the Fontan cannot do so. So if we think about elevated CVP and low cardiac output as the two hallmarks of this man-made form of heart failure, you can kind of think about why we would end up with long-term issues. Some of them are cardiac in general. So, you know, arrhythmias, there's a lot of surgical scar. There's a lot of substrate here. Both atrial arrhythmias, as I mentioned before, intraatrial reentry tachycardia is a common one, but also VT and non-sustained VT and sudden cardiac death is a common cause of poor outcomes for this patient population. We also think about heart failure in sort of different ways. I think you can think about it in ventricular, you know, heart failure in, in terms of systolic and diastolic dysfunction. But I also would think about Fontan failure in the terms of Fontan circuit failure. So you can still manifest problems like you said, ascites, loading, lower extremity edema, even in the face of normal ventricular systolic performance. Oftentimes, these patients have diastolic problems because when you're born, you have this large sort of, you know, single ventricle that has a lot of volume taken away when you pileate it when it comes to the separation of the two circuits from a single ventricle physiology to the hemifontan or bidirectional gland and fully unloading that ventricle over to the fontan. So you have abnormalities in filling. So I think fontans have a form of diastolic dysfunction, but even in the face of preserved systolic function, you can definitely get heart failure just like our patient here with normal systolic performance or ejection fraction. So other cardiovascular issues to think about are thromboembolic complications. For unknown reasons or poorly understood reasons, these patients are hypercoagulable. And, you know, some studies have looked at hypercoagulability in panels and, and they're quite abnormal in terms of abnormalities in AT3 and protein CNS. And these patients are maintained at the very least on aspirin. And some of them, as they get older in life, require full anticoagulation. So that's another cardiac alley that we are aware of that need to be considered across the lifespan. And then in terms of functional capacity, these patients do not have normal exercise tolerance, as I mentioned before, because of the high central venous pressures and baseline low cardiac output and inability to increase their low cardiac output. They have just abnormal exercise tolerance. And if you look at studies on their cardiopulmonary exercise stress testing and their VO2s, on average, they're kind of in the 20s, which is not good. And there are studies that show that there's progressive decrease in peak VO2 or oxygen consumption with each year of life. And that's, again, I think, reflective of the ongoing attrition and the breakdown of the Fontan circuit, which, again, was not really meant for a full lifetime without consequences. Wow, that's a lot to consider in terms of cardiac sequelae. And as you went over that, we're thinking about electrophysiologic considerations, interventional considerations. If you have, uh, you know, obstruction within the Fontan tunnel itself, we're thinking advanced heart failure considerations, vascular medicine considerations. So it really highlights the need to have a dedicated, comprehensive heart team that can manage these patients. And, you know, as part of the series, we're going to talk specifically about those overlaps with electrophysiology, interventional cardiology, palliative medicine in ACHD and whatnot. So I think this is such a classic example of why you need everyone to be on board. 
And another thing that I began to appreciate more as I was preparing for this discussion was how the pre-correction load that the ventricle sees, you know, all that excess volume load that Dan Clark was talking about earlier, that that single ventricle is seeing all of the, you know, double the preload and double the afterload in terms of volume. It causes remodeling and it manifests as heart failure later on. And so these patients, even after correction, live with these hits forever. And we have to keep these in mind. So I appreciate you highlighting that. So that's it for the cardiac sequelae. Dr. Kim, what about the non-cardiac sequelae? Well, unfortunately, there there are a number of those as well. Again, sort of going back to the two hallmarks of the Fontaine physiology with the chronically elevated CVP and the low cardiac, but you can kind of think a little bit more outside of the heart as to how this could impact other organ systems. I think the one that people think about a lot is Fontaine-associated liver disease, and that's intuitively sort of makes sense, right? So if you are living as a quote-unquote good Fontaine with CVPs in the 10 to 15 range, you can imagine what that can do to the organs such as the liver or even the kidneys. So hepatic venous pressures are quite elevated and, you know, in combination with the relatively low cardiac output, so relatively low forward flow with high hepatic venous pressures puts a lot of stress on organs like the liver and also the kidney. So there is a construct now called the Fontaine-associated liver disease, which is a known and really acknowledged complication of the Fontaine circulation that really wasn't talked about much, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Pediatric cardiologists now know to counsel families about the long-term impact on the liver and now more being recognized also the kidney as well. Mifontane-associated liver disease, unfortunately, is a form of congestion and scarring that can progress to fibrosis, cirrhosis, and even uh, hepatocellular cancer, unfortunately. And so this is a poorly understood phenomenon of the unique sort of aspects of this unnatural, like I said before, man-made form of heart failure. So I think liver disease is right up there. I think that renal disease needs to be thought of as well. They don't like pumping into the uh, high-pressure venous system as well. And again, low forward flow can be a setup really for hepatorenal syndrome and uh, derangements with renal disease. A little bit more tenuous than the liver, which has the ability to sort of withstand some of these derangements in, in physiology, but the kidney we're learning is not normal and uh, some... Some research is showing that there are more sensitive ways to look at renal dysfunction in the Fontan, and it's not normal. So I think those two organs are certainly at risk. I think that another very important system that is or can be deranged in the Fontan is the lymphatic system. Again, this is a system that was historically underappreciated and kind of relegated to the side. Here at CHOP, we have a big lymphatics program that is dedicated not only for Fontan patients, but for patients with lymphatic disorders. And it's really sort of the forgotten system. We kind of think about, you know, the arteries and the veins, but then no one, no one talks about the lymphatics. But the lymphatics are certainly important in an anatomically normal lymphatic system. The thoracic duct actually dumps into the SVC. And, you know, if your SVC pressures are, like I said, 10 to 15, you can imagine what happens to the lymphatic pressures if it's trying to dump into high pressures like that. In addition to difficulties in draining the lymphatics, the system can also be congenitally abnormal in the Fontan. And so the lymphatics can generate a ton of extra fluid that we just don't really think about in conventional cardiac terms, but plays such an important role in this concept of Fontan failure. So I think lymphatic system, really important and a big player when it comes to two unique forms of heart failure in the Fontan, which takes the form of protein losing neuropathy as well as plastic bronchitis, both of which are poor prognostic factors and specific complications to Fontan failure. I think other things to think about in terms of extracardiac sequelae, we do have neurocognitive and neurologic issues. So again, somewhat related to the thromboembolic complications, there's a known association with higher risk of stroke. There's also a known association with neurocognitive disorders. This would be anxiety, depression, learning disorders, ADHD. That's also well-documented that our single ventricle patients have serious neurologic and neuropsychiatric sequelae that we think are related to this physiology as well. And I think last but not least, pregnancy is also a very difficult and high-risk endeavor for these patients for some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier. And so it is worth mentioning here. Oh, wow. That was a fantastic and comprehensive overview, Dr. Kim. And it really begins to, to help us understand what our patients are, who are living with the Fontaine go through, as well as several of the concerns that we have to think about for Ms. Condwight's presentation. So she underwent a comprehensive workup to look for contributors to her Fontaine failure 
including echocardiogram, cardiopulmonary exercise testing, and cardiac catheterization with Fontan angiography. Her exercise test was most notable for chronotropic incompetence with a blunted heart rate response, even though the test was maximal in effort with an RERs, some use RQ greater than 1.15. She was known to be a complete AV block with a junctional or narrow complex QRS escape rate at about 60 beats per minute. When she exercised, her heart rate only increased to 68 beats per minute. From her history, there were no symptoms suggestive of plastic bronchitis or enteropathy. Hey, Dan A., you mind interrogating further on the table of truth? You bet, Dan. And not just because you're my favorite referring, but because we got to get some answers. So let's take her to the lab. All right. Her mean Fontan pressures range from 23 to 25 millimeters of mercury on cath. And the angiogram showed a discrete stenosis at the anastomosis between the extracardiac conduit and the branch of the pulmonary arteries. In addition, the left pulmonary artery had a discrete stenosis of about 50% with just a tap of fluoro you could easily see that the conduit itself was heavily calcified. And that's a lot of information to parse through. With her Fontan, she's completely relying on passive flow to the lungs without a pump to help her, right? So I would imagine that forward flow would be particularly vulnerable to anatomic obstruction as Dan A found in her Fontan circuit and in the left pulmonary artery. Danielle, what's going on in your mind? That's true, Amit. Passive forward flow through a Fontan circuit can be severely compromised with any excess resistance. Here, I'm thinking about focal anatomic stenosis in the Fontan itself and in the LPA. So certainly those could explain some of her right-sided heart failure symptoms and our opportunities for intervention. But more broadly, they're susceptible to any increase in resistance for any reason and very poorly tolerate pulmonary hypertension, whether precapillary or postcapillary from failure of the single systemic ventricle. Similarly, just imagine how pulmonary disease with hypoxic vasoconstriction or intubation with positive pressure ventilation could cause hemodynamic deterioration in these patients. But getting back to our Ms. Dwight, another important thing that strikes me is her rhythm. Fontan circulation functions best in the setting of AV synchrony. Long-standing junctional rhythm could be contributing to pulmonary venous congestion and exacerbating the elevated pressures as well. Did her echo show any significant valvulopathy or ventricular dysfunction? Great question. The mitral and aortic valves were functioning well. The systemic ventricle was mildly dilated, but the function was normal. Dr. Kim, how would you approach management for Ms. Dwight? Danielle pointed out some of the key issues here. When we have somebody who presents with Fontan physiology and heart failure, I think you got to go to the Fontan. And as you said earlier, we got to make sure that the flow is unobstructed. And here are two obvious reasons why she could be in heart failure. Her Fontan is obstructed at the levels of the PAs and also at the LPA. So I would take her to the lab. Not me personally, but I would send her to my colleague in the lab and have them try and open up these levels of obstruction just to relieve as much blood flow to the PAs as much as possible. I do think that while you're in the lab, it's also important to think about other determinants of Fontan failure. And unlike conventional heart disease, we think about the determinants of cardiac output being the heart rate and the stroke volume rate. And I think she definitely has something wrong with one of those things, which is our heart rate. And she has chronotropic incompetence. And that definitely is another area that I would address when it comes to her heart failure. So I think structurally, the stenosis and her chronotropic incompetence. But I think the last thing that I would think about in anybody who's presenting with heart failure type symptoms is to look at the transpulmonary gradient. As Danielle mentioned, any perturbation in the pulmonary vascular resistance is going to be really detrimental to this reliance on pulmonary blood flow. You know, the blood obligatorily has to get to the lungs just through passive flow. There is no pump pushing the blood into the PAs. So if you have anything, not just mechanical, but even in terms of resistance that's obstructing the blood flow, you'll come into problems. And the issue here is that it's really difficult to measure pulmonary vascular resistance in the Fontan because the blood flow is so passive. If you remember the calculations for PBR, you really need to have high flow. But in this particular system, I think a quick and dirty would be to look at the transpulmonary gradient. So those are the three things that I would look at when it comes to getting her feeling better. Stenting, pacemaker, and checking out and see if her PBR is any better after stenting. We did not consider like pulmonary vasodilators during the admission because we didn't think that 
pulmonary vascular resistance in and of itself, like aside from the actual anatomic obstruction, was necessarily contributing. So we decided to sort of do stepwise approach and address the anatomic stuff first. And then I think she'll get recapped and and see where we're at. But I, also, like, she's sort of self-explanatory in the sense that the things that we did, he, like, all we did was stent. And then we just gave her some AV synchrony and heart rate response. And she resolved all of her uh, symptoms. So I don't know when the primary cardiologist plans to recath her. But it seems like right now, PVR, it's in and of itself, is not a huge problem for her. Well, I'm very glad that Ms. Dwight did well. This case really highlights many of the reasons that I love ACHD. The complex anatomy and physiology, as well as the plethora of diagnostic and management maneuvers, just keeps me excited. In evaluating such patients, we consider all the possible downstream sequelae, as Dr. Kim so nicely pointed out, cardiac and non-cardiac, and the approach really involves extensive kind of collaborative testing, including laboratory evaluation, my personal favorite multimodality imaging, rhythm monitors, exercise testing, angiography, uh, and invasive hemodynamics, as we saw in, in this case, each of these things was so important. Medical management spans the gamut as we optimize the fluid status, address pulmonary and systemic afterload, add quote-unquote guideline-directed medical therapy for filling ventricle, which is really undergoing investigation as to, to what that may be for, for single ventricular heart disease. Think through things like anticoagulation, antiarrhythmics, pregnancy, and so, so much more. With many patients, as our patient here, they're both interventional and electrophysiologic procedures that may need to be performed. And so collaboration with our other cardiac providers is incredibly important. And then we have to be mindful of managing all the extra cardiac organ involvement with a collaborative multidisciplinary team with dedicated expertise in this area. With all this in our toolkit, patients with Fontan circuits often lead productive lives, albeit possibly limited from all the sequelae. The question arises about the role for heart transplant, and even some centers consider this the fourth stage of palliation. Because of the accrued multi-organ injury, transplant itself can be very high risk perioperatively, but if they get through it, they may have a favorable long-term outcome. So Dr. Kim, how do you weigh the perioperative risk of heart transplant against the long-term benefits in your patients with Fontan circuits? Yeah, that's a great question. I think this is an area of active research. We don't totally understand or know, you know, the full picture. What we do know is that the upfront perioperative risk for our Fontan patients is much higher compared to the non-congenital population or even non-Fontan ACHD patients who are undergoing transplant. And this has to do with, again, the complexity of the substrate itself. So things that sort of make this patient population at increased risk for perioperative badness and, or even mortality are things like, you know, multiple sternotomies, collateral vessels. We talked a little bit about that, but these patients are at ongoing risk for volume overload to the single ventricle from AP collaterals or aortopulmonary collaterals, which develop over time. They also develop what we call venovenous collaterals, which are systemic venous to pulmonary venous connections, almost like a pop-off, and it causes not volume overload, but this causes cyanosis. And this is also a risk factor for untoward outcomes for transplant and ACHD. We also know that sometimes these patients have very difficult or challenging anatomies. Structurally, the cardiac surgeon would have to potentially deal with heterotaxy syndrome with dextrocardia, bilateral SVCs or SVCs only on one side, cable anatomy, in addition to the cable anatomy being off, pulmonary venous anatomy can be different as well. So there are structural issues to take into consideration. These patients can also be sensitized because of exposure to graft material and other things, blood transfusions earlier in life. These patients might also be nutritionally depleted from protein-losing enteropathy, which is considered an indication for transplant, which we know can actually be addressed and treated by transplant, but again, ups the risk when it comes to healing and sort of recovery. And then I think one of the things that is an item of hot debate in the ACHD field right now is whether these patients actually need a concomitant liver transplant at the time of their orthotopic heart transplant. I don't know what the right answer is. As I said, it's an area of hot debate at this point. We have various centers doing things differently. I think part of this has to do with the fact that we don't really understand the nature of Fontan-associated liver disease. These patients have cirrhosis on their biopsies and on their imaging, and it is very difficult to consider leaving that liver in the system if we think that they may be at risk for fulminant liver dysfunction or liver failure at the time of heart transplant. And so that is another added level of complexity that could contribute to untoward outcomes, as I said earlier, with morbidity and increased mortality. 
Now, that being said, what is sort of interesting is if you can get past the early perioperative time period, the outcomes for these patients are actually quite good. And I think that this goes to show that these patients that in general are younger than patients, other patients without congenital heart disease getting transplant, and that, you know, aside from the circulatory problems, they, they are quite healthy other than that. And so, you know, I always counsel my patients who are undergoing transplant evaluation that there is some upfront risk, but I think the long-term benefits, if the patients are chosen wisely, I can be beneficial. But unfortunately, we also know that our patients have increased mortality on the wait list. And so there, there's just a lot of, there are a lot of hurdles that we have to address prior to the actual ultimate act of transplantation itself that makes this particular patient population extremely complex in terms of transplant evaluation and listing. So Dr. Kim, I really appreciate hearing all these considerations about taking patients to transplant and why it can be an incredibly complicated thing and not always an easy fix, but when it goes well, there's what to be optimistic about. Dan Clark, how did the patient do? She actually did very well. So she underwent 3D printing of her complex anatomy to guide interventional procedure that ultimately led to a stent to relieve the Fontan obstruction and then had AV synchrony restored through a pacemaker and has symptomatic improvement without any signs of Fontan failure at follow-up. Wow, that is really, really great to hear. And what a wonderful and marvelous discussion. Again, as reiterated, ACHD is clearly such a special field and my heart is fluttering in sinus from all the fascinating hemodynamics and incredible ways that you have to improve the lives of people living with ACHD. Consider me a super fan. Dr. Kim, throwing this to you. This is a question we ask all of our experts. What makes your heart flutter about adult congenital heart disease? Oh, what's there not to love about adult congenital heart disease? There aren't any two patients that are alike. And I think Danielle can attest to this. They're all so unique, both in their anatomy and their physiology and the personal journeys that they've taken. I mean, I, I just can't get bored in this field. It, it really stretches my intellectual and natural curiosity about anatomy and physiology. I think that it also keeps me interested because the patients themselves have such amazing individual stories. And I, I, I think this time of life is such an important one. You know, people are getting married and thinking about having kids and getting jobs. And this is an exciting time of life. And to be part of that story, I think is great. And then I think I really enjoy working in teams. And as you mentioned earlier, you can't have ACHD in a bubble. You've got to work with other subspecialists who are masters in their own field. And I learn so much every day from talking to my colleagues who take care of these patients with me. That was incredible, Dr. Kim. You know, as a fellow in training, there's nothing more inspiring than hearing people you look up to talk about why they're passionate about what they do. And we're definitely seeing that glimmer in your words. You know, ACHD is such a broad field and has so many overlaps with other specialties. And, and clearly it's incredible. You know, it caused Dan to have sinus flutter. Not quite sure what that is, but Danielle, we'd love to hear about your experience as an ACHD fellow and your career plans moving forward. Well, I absolutely could not agree more with what Dr. Kim just said. The field of ACHD is just a constant challenge and no two patient encounters are the same. I first became interested in ACHD when I was doing my pediatric cardiology fellowship because we routinely cared for adults with congenital heart disease. So I just was viewing it as a natural extension of the work I was already learning to do with pediatrics. But I think as we already sort of touched on, a key difference is that in pediatrics, often there's a sort of a distinct lack of comorbidities. So it's easy to focus on, you know, the one system, the cardiovascular system that's causing all the major problems early on. But in adults, it starts to span every other facet of not only their body, but you can see how it affects every other part of their life. And so it becomes a lot more complex and even more interesting than it was when they were babies. Now I'm lucky enough to be learning from a huge patient population with a really broad range of pathologies, as well as faculty members who are really experts and true leaders in the field. Aside from ACHD, I've also developed additional interests in transition, as well as quality improvement and patient safety. So I'm hopefully going to carry those forward as well into my early career. Thanks, Danielle. And Josh, I'm going to turn it to you now. You are my co-fellow, a third-year general cardiology fellow, although I could swear you're a PGY-8 or, or above. But you know, you just heard Danielle talking about her love for ACHD, 
She's living a life that you're going to be living very soon. And as a series coacher, you just got the first row seat to this incredible discussion where we learned from Danielle and Dr. Kim about single ventricle physiology, Fontan circuits, and so much more. So let me ask you, how excited do you feel right now to join Dr. Kim at the University of Pennsylvania to dive into your ACHE training? I mean, I... I honestly can't wait. I mean, I think it's this episode in particular was one that I was looking forward to because I think that the Fontaine circulation really represents sort of a number of differences in physiology that we don't appreciate maybe in general cardiology on a broader level. I think it really speaks to the anatomy in very specific ways. I think it speaks to physiologic consequences in certain ways that we I feel like don't appreciate as much in cardiology on a broader level. I I stopped counting my PGY status a long time ago. I didn't want to kind of make my way up to 20 without realizing, but I still felt like counting was not sort of the most fun exercise. But I, I really can't wait. I think it's, you know, a whole new world. I think that you really can appreciate a lot of differences in patients. Like Danielle and Dr. Kim said, no two patients are alike. I can't wait. I just, I can't wait. Good answer, Josh. <laughs> Josh, she you knows your PGY status goes up. They just recycle you back through the PGY one pay. Yeah. So there's no PGY <laughs> money. You just reach like 15 or so. There's, there's no double digits. You just go back to one. <laughs> I just want to say directly to all the medical students and residents and first year early cardiology fellows listening to the show. We all love what we do and are so happy to be doing this. And the pay is going to be sufficient. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you, everyone, for such a, a wonderful discussion. And to our audience, thank you all for joining. Hey, Cardio Nerds. My name is Karen Stout. I'm an ACHD nerd at the University of Washington in Seattle. I'm a member of the Medical Advisory Board with the Adult Congenital Heart Association. Not long ago, congenital heart disease was widely considered to be an exclusively pediatric field given the short lifespan of our patients. However, advances in diagnosis and management have transformed many patients' lives and brought them into adulthood. There are now more adults living with CHD than children. This growing population requires a specialized and personalized approach from multidisciplinary team. While not every cardio nerd will specialize in ACHD, you will all have the opportunity to touch the lives of adult patients with congenital heart disease, recognize their unique needs, and refer them to the appropriate centers if and when needed. We need both trainees eager to care for this patient population and non-ACHD providers to have fundamental knowledge about these conditions for optimal practice while working in tandem with board-certified adult congenital heart disease providers. We congratulate the cardio nerds on their mission to democratize cardiovascular education and for creating this series to raise awareness about ACHD. I'm glad to say that this episode and all others in this series are brought to you in collaboration with the Adult Congenital Heart Association. ACHA's mission is to empower the CHD community by advancing access to resources and specialized care that improve patient-centered outcomes. The cardio nerds have clearly done that here. If you'd like to contribute to ACHA to provide educational resources, opportunities to connect with other providers, become a part of the Medical Advisory Board, or apply for ACHA research funding, please email info at achaheart.org. Again, email is info at achaheart, all one word, dot org. If you're interested in learning more about clinical congenital heart disease diagnosis and management, please note that there are free educational online resources available through Heart University and the Congenital Heart International Professionals, or CHIP, networks. Both have tremendous resources to provide further depth to your understanding of ACHD. You can find more about the ACHA, CHIP, and HeartUniversity.com in the episode description on the CardioNerds website. Thank you. And then Clark is going to have like the sophisticated... Uh, <laughs> he does. He does, actually. <laughs> well, Dan Clark, I think that's your cue. All right. Well, guys, real quick. Danielle, you, you sound like such a natural podcaster. I'm kind of like, <laughs> it took me personally months to feel so like comfortable, like recording and be so smooth. I just, it's, 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 it's very good. It's very that's good. very nice of you because I'm, I'm like sweating buckets over here. So <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> voice. Yeah, like, but this is amazing. <laughs> All right. And with that, I'll, I'll transition to not so soothing voice. Here we go. <laughs> no, I'm in a sophisticated voice that Dan A was talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, gosh.